Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day in a rather deserted city of Westminster as once again we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Gregor Aikman. Gregor is the co-founder and managing director of Filament PD Limited, a product development company based in Glasgow, Scotland. Gregor, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you. Um, absolute pleasure uh, having you and thanks ever so much for taking the time to come on to the air. Now, Gregor, the purpose of this podcast series, as I say, is to gather together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership as a whole. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it, with the COVID-19 situation and business leaders having to really feel their way through this crisis. Tell me, for somebody in your line of work, how has it been trying to navigate the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it's been a significant challenge in that respect. Yes, it's definitely a challenge. I think I think it's just been quite tricky generally. So we are quite, I believe, quite a well-managed company um, and our team work really closely together. But even with a lot of management structures and uh, team in place, everything's changing so quickly around about us. And I think that, that kind of leadership thing really comes into play. Like how do we, how do we kind of move forward um, through existing initiatives, things that are changing around the business, customers' needs, um, etc., and move forward in the, the right direction. And while, while um, everything's a bit tense and a bit unknown, so, yeah, I think with our company, what we've just been trying to do really is just keep communication um, lines open. Um, and I think that's, that's something that's really intensified over the last couple of weeks the amount of uh, extra comms that we've had with the team mm. and the amount of extra direction um, required even for, for kind of seemingly small things but to make sure we're, we're doing those efficiently um, because uh, how, especially for a consultancy uh, a design agency how, how well we, we progress projects is, is, is basically our bottom line so and have you found as well that the team at Filament PD has really embraced the challenge of having to work remotely in some cases and just get stuck in for the greater good of the business throughout this crisis? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Um, it's been a bit tricky. So we actually started before the official UK lockdown. Um, we started working from home a couple of weeks before that on a kind of split team um, rotation. Um, we're, we're lucky that we've, um, we're quite modernised in the way that, that we run our um our projects and uh, everything else within our company. We've, we've got all, all our um, files on the cloud. We use uh, online project management tools. So I think we were quite lucky in that that sense that we didn't need to to create much or learn um, new uh, tools and to, to keep working. So we were, we were quite efficient. So I think it was more about the how we're, as I said, we're quite a close team. So it was just about how we work together and how we work with customers and keep that and keep the focus on on working and um, i think that's been our, our major challenge to so the kind of team morale if you like um, and morale with um, with our customers and suppliers and um, yeah i think we're just been working through that with, with finding different ways of doing things tweaking things that we've, we've already done but um trying to keep a kind of foundation of the the systems we already had in place but finding um new quicker almost fun ways to do it while you're well, you're stuck at home, I guess, while you're in the same environment day in, day out. Um, and that, that's obviously got certain mental health um, repercussions, I guess. Mm. 
We've certainly taken it for granted, haven't we, prior to the lockdown, that human contact that we have in an office space every single day. And uh, the fact that that's now being taken away, essentially, has been kind of a real game changer. But I think it shows the adaptability and the resilience of business, doesn't it? That ability to sort of keep going and keep that close-knit feel, even from a distance, doing it all through virtual means, even though it might be difficult sometimes to get certain messages across and have certain discussions in the same way. Yeah, it's definitely a test um, of of um, your business, of your company. I think um, it does show the resilience of people um, and of your team when when everyone essentially just mucks in to go on with it. Um, yes, there's 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 snagging issues, there's uh, technology issues that you need to ride out. But yeah, I think once the the newness and the change um, gets, once you get used to that change, then I think yeah, the resilience of people to to just keep pushing on with uh, your company goals and their individual KPIs and targets, etc. And I think it really does uh, make you thankful for the team that you've got around you. And do you think that um, it's been um, an easy transition for your leadership approach to helping manage people remotely or have you had to maybe adapt one or two things in that regard? I wouldn't say it was easy. I think think the management of what we do is was was quite simple to keep to keep moving. Uh, I think that's just credit to the to the work we've been doing in the last couple of years with our company and the foundations we've been laying to grow. Um, I think the the difficult part from a leadership point of view is, is keeping people's focus. Um, I think it's working with different personalities um, and the team to to kind of keep everyone happy um, and to try and manage everything that's going around the company side of things, not the day in. Uh, day out and work with our with our customers, but all the the government advice, the the support available, and looking at keeping cash flow going, all those kind of things that is just over and above the the, the typical team communications. And um, so I would say that that's been the challenge to kind of keep abreast of all that stuff and um, mm-hmm. up to date with all that stuff and and be able to timely and in a timely manner and clearly communicate that to to your team so that so that everyone's at um, everyone's comfortable with, with um, the way the company's moving. And one of the really interesting points you raised uh, there, Gregor, was the importance of uh, maybe adapting your approach with uh, managing different people, even outside of times of crisis. I think um, you can't understate the importance of that because no one approach of especially people management is going to work with every single person. It's about understanding different personalities, managing them in a certain way and knowing what makes them tick as a leader as well, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's, that's what I, I kind of stepped into the managing director role about a year and a half ago in the company. Before that, I was kind of natural director by being one of the founders. And when I stepped into that role, it was definitely, it's the difference between, I guess, management and leadership. And it's the way I would I would look at it. And so the leadership is about that setting the direction and, and vision of what you're doing. And, and the, the kind of management is going to change day in, day out, but it's to kind of keep that, um, that leadership or direction and peace going with different members of the team and you've got to find ways to different ways to communicate um, different ways to react to problems with people different ways to support people um, and that, that goes for myself but including as other, other people in my team and that's right through the team even from director level right through to everyone on the team that they found different ways to kind of uh, help and lead each other through um, different like quite difficult um, situations at the moment. 
For sure, because it is a very much um, a team um, effort, absolutely right. And of course, you've held a number of uh, director roles at various firms prior to co-launching the business around about seven years ago, uh, Gregor. Um, did you always imagine early on in your career that you would end up co-founding a business and essentially working for yourself and being in a leadership role? I think so. I think the the course I studied at university and the type of um, profession I chose, being a designer, that has got quite a high entrepreneurial um, thinking towards it that you do, uh, you do get a lot of startup companies um, and consultancies and agencies, uh, agencies rather, um, starting up from from my type of uh, training. Um, so it's something that I always uh, wanted to do. I'd always worked when I'd worked part time for university, etc. I'd worked for small companies, startups, and and you know, um, small family-owned companies. So I think I, I had that kind of in my blood. Um, I think I'd always envisaged working for myself in terms of how big a company I would grow underneath me in terms of leadership. I don't think that was something that at the outset of doing this I had, I had quite uh, formulated. Um, so I think it's the last couple of years where I've really, we've really sat down and said, right, where do we want to take our agency? Um, and that, that kind of leadership thing has gone into play to look at right who's going to who's going to be in charge of kind of pushing the vision of the company and getting us towards the goals. So, yeah, I think it's always changing. Um, I, I don't think it's exactly what I expected um, from my career, but um, I think it's enjoyable and that that, that people piece is the, the main part. Um, and that for me, that um, the people around you um, that you're, you're delivering these projects with, that you're helping... Um, customers out with the people around you that are gonna are gonna be there in a few years time that you um you need to rely on go on with and, and work with. And as you've gone through your career as well, Gregor, what would you say have been some of your biggest influences or biggest inspirations? Mainly people around me, I guess. So I was lucky in terms of let's say my, my kind of upbringing and work was to work for a few kind of um, startup companies the the drive um, that the owners of those companies had was was impressive. I, I think I, that definitely rubbed off on me um, through university years. Just some of the the tutors um, at the various institutions I studied at, um, in terms of how they how they approach things. And then I guess when you start when we started, and um, I started my professional career, I was, I was surrounded by my first agency was part of a group um, of companies, and there was there was some individuals in those companies that um, the led teams that. Thing. So I guess I'm taking all of uh, different cues from different people, but I guess in recent years it's about the team below me kind of pushing and um, pushing me and uh, trusting me with um, certain decisions. And uh, I think you can take your inspiration from that direction as well as um, people that you, you, you look up to. There's certainly a lot of uh, merit, isn't there, in surrounding yourself with positive um, people, even if they're subordinate to you, because it's about not just getting the best out of people around you as a leader, but also in recruiting people who are going to uh, get the best out of you. And uh, I think what you say there is um, hugely important as well, in that a lot of the most inspirational leaders, especially in the business world, are team leaders, mentors, tutors um, at universities, schools, for example. And quite often, considering that we think of leadership as being associated with people within the the public eye such as politicians sports personalities etc yeah. sometimes in the business world we don't necessarily recognize good leadership as much as we should do do we yeah i think that's right i think it's it's something that you might think about leadership in terms of a media sense or a, 
um, even entertainment sense when you think about um, managers of, of sports teams, etc. But I think I think when you lead a small company, sometimes you can get quite blinkered to that, like what you're you're so focused on what you're doing, um, that that kind of stuff is, is a, a, a separate world um, to you because you're you're busy doing what you're you're doing and you're you're putting in a lot of hours. Um, so that kind of stuff, the time to absorb that kind of um, that kind of thing from the outside world is, is difficult. So I think when you do get time to reflect on it, I think it is the people you work with, including I guess including all your all your partners or your customers. Um, like a lot of our customers are are startups or entrepreneurs as well, um, and and you always take cues from those kind of people you work with as well. So I think, yeah, I think you you get a somewhat like theoretical view um, of what leadership is from from looking at um, famous um, figures, um, but then you you, you, you kind of turn that with people that you speak to day in day out, and you start to see um, the positive traits, the maybe less negative things in there, and you, you start to piece up to, piece together what that means to you and and what you what you feel is your your approach um, and style of, of leadership. Absolutely. And that approach is certainly something which develops throughout um, one's career, I suppose. It's never something that's um, completely a finished um, article in a way. Um, but if you could perhaps um, go back 10 years, uh, Gregor, and uh, maybe do anything differently, is there anything that you would fundamentally change in the approach that you've taken over these years? Or would you say that you keep uh, ploughing on in very much the same vein? An interesting question. Um, I don't. I'm not sure because I think my my path was I was always going to uh, be a director of my company, so I think I was always always involved in the management and leadership a little. But in the early years, I was, it was really my my training as as a designer. So in the early years, I was really just absorbing and absorbing uh, skills and building my skills and. And designing products really, and now that I'm kind of we've grown a team around about us, and um, I'm doing more of the the management and leadership, I guess, um, and less of the designing. That I don't think I'll be able to be in the position I'm in without doing that groundwork and um, without um, getting the, the exposure um, and the experience of designing products. I think you, you need to be able to uh, you need to know the subject matter um, inside out, and definitely in our um, field of work to, to be able to, to manage projects effect, effectively and um, so I guess looking back it may have been how I'd approach projects um, and I'd approach them differently but I think as you say it's about you you need to gain that experience to be able to, to work with you need to you need to have met loads of different people and worked in a range of different projects to be able to manage them and um, so I think that's just something that you need to, to go through and gain the experience until you can really work out what uh, your your style is you can't understate the importance of experience absolutely you can have your inspirations and you can have your influences but experience is certainly as you say one of the greatest uh, teachers out there um, we reflected there on the past very briefly uh, Greg and now if we look to the future before we do wrap things up on the program today um, do give me an idea as to what you envision the next 12 months holding for yourself and for Filament PD and also what you hope to achieve not just in navigating the current Covid situation but also what your ambitions are for beyond the pandemic as well yeah so i guess the pandemic has put a bit of a, a pause on things it's, it's maybe a bit, a bit of a hiccup in the, the, the old program and um, but our our uh, drive is to and um, to get to be a leading agency 
and definitely in the UK, if not in the world, and, and connected devices. So we're very much um, still tuned into that. And I guess in the short term, it's uh, kind of keeping things as normal as possible. We're, we're lucky that we work in a, a range of sectors from renewables, digital health, smart buildings, etc. that we we do have a spread of, of customers and, and sectors, which means we're still um, able to work um, quite effectively um, throughout this period. Um, what I hope to happen in the next, next year with any uh, kind of downturn in the economy you'll get um, a lot of innovation coming out the other side of that so you can see it just now the amount of um, grants and projects being supported for, for helping um, with new technologies or, or new products to help out with um, the new world around us I guess um, and I think out the, the back of that, that hope that we are um, well placed um, to be able to support that in the, in the sectors that we already service Absolutely. It certainly seems exciting these changing times because there will be opportunities beyond the pandemic for sure, as painful as it has been in the short term. And I think it would be brilliant for the listeners as well, Gregor, as if when we start to see some real evidence of the uh, market environment changing, we could perhaps even have you back on the air with us and look at this retrospectively and just catch up on how the business is doing and seizing upon those opportunities too. Um, even though we are just about out of time today, I mean, it's been a real pleasure having you on the uh, the programme with us and a real insightful experience as well. And I can't thank you enough certainly for uh, taking the time to come on and speak with me today i've really really enjoyed it you're welcome thank you thanks ever so much gregor and do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on as well and you that was gregor aitman the co-founder and managing director of filament pd limited coming up next on the program today i'll be handing over to matthew o'neill for his exclusive interview with lord blunkett um, lord blunkett is an active member of the house of lords a former labour mp and secretary of state and also the chairman of the leaders council of great britain and northern ireland now despite being blind from birth lord blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation having held a number of senior positions in tony blair's cabinet and having served as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. Lord Blunkett was first elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett, and that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help, I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is 
that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good, 
as well as seeing an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people 
not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of 
counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? 
were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so 
I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, 
to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, 
but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.